Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to the Old Testament minor prophet Zechariah towards the tail end of the Old Testament. So if you get to the Gospels and back up just a little bit, a couple of books, you'll come to Zechariah. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles we've got there in the pews, it's page 745. But it'll definitely be helpful if you've got a Bible open. You can follow along as, as we move through this passage this morning. So Tim mentioned we started the book of Zechariah last Sunday, verses 1 through 6. This morning we come to the following section, verses 7 through 21. That, of course, is the practice. If you haven't been here much with us, we'll just pick a Bible book and then we just work our way through it verse by verse to get the whole counsel of God, everything he has for us. So this morning, Zechariah chapter 1, 7 through 21. There's um, an outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to see where we're going. Write down anything you think is helpful, but there's an outline there on the back of the worship guide. Um, I still remember... Uh, in Maine exactly where I was. I was with the older kids. We were driving to school and I remember where we were on the road when, um, when I got a phone call from my doctor's office, from one of the nurses there with some test results um, about a, what could have been a significant illness and uh, something that, that they had run a test on. And uh, I got the phone call, praise the Lord, early in the morning. And she let me know that test was negative. And it was such a comfort and such a relief feeling like a weight was lifted off me. You've probably had an experience like that, but I remember exactly where we were because it was such a significant feeling of, uh, of comfort, those words that I got. Well, uh, our significance or the significance of, of our earthly health, it, it pales in comparison with our eternal heavenly health. That's the thing we're really aiming for. We understand that'll last for eternity, so much more significant well, it's, it's with that second category, our heavenly eternal health, that the Lord has comforting words for us in our passage this morning. And they were comforting words for, for the people of Judah as well. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 1, beginning with verse 7. On the 24th day of the month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out, or uh, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, 
and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Okay, well, well, we'll get into the explanation of this passage, these two visions that the Lord gives to Zechariah. But just so we know where, where we're going, these are, like we saw in the middle of this passage, these are comforting words for Judah and by extension, comforting words for us. And God's comfort for you in this passage is, is at least threefold. And this is the way we'll look at the passage. So first, be comforted that God is always supervising everything. That's the first point we'll see. Second, be comforted that he will fully save his people. And then finally, be comforted that he will defeat his people's enemies. So, so now we've, we've moved past the prologue, the beginning part of Zechariah that we looked at last week. We're into the meat of this book. And remember what we said last week. The book of Zechariah is made up of eight visions, supernatural visions that God gives to Zechariah. And then it's got a sermon in the middle. And then it ends with these two, what the Lord calls oracles, sort of explaining some things, giving some pictures of the future. So that's what happens in the, in the book of Zechariah. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to cover these first two visions. Now, we point out last week, the, these, these, uh, these aren't dreams. Zechariah, he's, he's awake here. But somehow God allows him to see these visions. So what is it that he sees? What does God give to him? Verse 8, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Now, now these kinds of visions that the Lord gives, usually symbolic, or at least contain some symbolic pieces to them. So, so in other words, the Lord shows the prophet something, and that's usually a symbol a stand-in for something else. It's normally pointing to something that's even more significant. So in the book of Revelation, we'll be familiar with this one, when it talks about John seeing a, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, okay, we know that's a symbol for Jesus. And yet, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we don't expect to meet Jesus and see a lamb with seven horns and with seven eyes, right? No, it's, it's symbolic language. So it's, it's the same thing here. These visions are full of, of symbolism. Okay, so this first vision, it centers around these, these different colored horses. In Zechariah, he talks to the angel who had been mounted on the red horse. These horses had folks that had been riding them, angels. Well, he talks to the one that gets off of, of the red horse. Verse nine, then I, Zechariah, then I said, what are these, my Lord? So explain this to me. The angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now, again, I mentioned this last week, but a lot of connection between Zechariah and Revelation. So again, if, if you're looking for, maybe you're about done reading a book in the Bible and you're thinking, okay, what am I gonna read next for my own personal time of, of reading my own devotional time with the Lord? Consider Revelation because it pairs really well 
with the book of Zechariah. But you remember the vision given to John, that includes horses sent out by the Lord. You remember? So it's, it's the same thing here. So this is a symbol God is fond of using with his prophets. There's this picture of these, these horses. Okay, so what is it they've been sent out to do? What's the purpose of these horses in the vision? We're told in verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Okay, that's their purpose. God sends out these four horses and they go all around the earth and they are patrolling the earth. And this is a really helpful picture of God's oversight in this world. And it's our first point this morning. Be comforted that God is always supervising everything. It's what we see here right off the bat. God's always supervising everything. He, he has a constant, complete awareness of everything that's going on in the universe that he has created. Listen to what we're taught in Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch. So God is always seeing all things. Remember, we saw this in Psalm 121 that we preached through just maybe a month ago. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Same idea. God's always supervising everything. Okay, but if that's the case, then why is he sending out these four horses, right? Why does he need to do that? If, like we saw in Proverbs, if the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Well, again, it's, it's symbolic. So it's pretty difficult if you think about it. We're used to thinking about it if you've been a Christian for a while. Okay, God sees everything all the time. But try to think about that for a second. So the God of the universe is aware 100% of everything. Every detail in this universe has God's full attention all the time. Now, my kids know this, they've learned it with me, but if I'm talking on the phone and my kids have a question, I cannot do both of those things at one time. I feel like my brain is about to break. Now, Maria can do those two things at one time, as well as three or four other things, but my brain doesn't work that way. But everybody has their limits, right? You can only do so many things at once, not the Lord. He is 100% focused on, his full attention is set on every detail of this universe. So in some dusty attic somewhere where a bird lights on the roof and a bit of dust falls and floats down to the floor, that event has God's full attention. Is that not incredible? Every detail has his full attention all the time. Okay, we cannot comprehend that fully. It's just another reminder, his ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts. We're creatures, we cannot understand that fully. Okay, well, it's much easier though, isn't it, to understand the picture of a king who sends out messengers to go around the kingdom and see what's going on and then report back. So this, the way John Calvin, pastor in the 16th century, the way he talked about this, it's like God talking baby talk to us. He, he communicates to us in a way that we can actually kind of get our mind around. That's kind of him, isn't it? So that's what the Lord is, is doing here. He's giving us this picture of these horses going out and bringing back information. But we know that that's our God. He knows everything that's going on all the time. And, and isn't this the kind of king worthy of our worship and trust? Now, who else are we looking for to put our hope in other than a God like this, who's aware of everything happening in this world all the time? And more particularly, 
He knows everything that's going on in your life all the time. More specific than that, he knows everything that's going on in your heart all the time. So whereas most people you talk to, there's a limit, there's a ceiling on how much they can understand, not the Lord. He understands you when nobody else understands you. He sees everything, even what's going on inside of you. He understands even when no one else does. So God's eyes are are like these four horses sent to search out the whole world to see everything. Nothing slips by our God. He knows everything. So be comforted by that, right? Fall back on God. Put your trust in him. Be comforted that God is always supervising everything. It's the first thing we see here. So, So that's what's happening here. These horses have been sent out by God in this vision to patrol the earth. Now look at what they're patrolling for. Verse 11. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, so that's what they're looking for. And they report back, all the world is remaining at rest. Now, right off the bat, that should catch our attention because these messengers sent out, we know they're sent into a world that's broken by sin. And that's filled up with folks that are enemies of the Lord, that are actively opposed to the Lord. That situation is not one where things are at rest. You know, if you, if you went around to all the world and you looked at all the different countries, and you came back, that would not be the way that you would sum up what you had seen. Oh, everything is at rest. No, not, not in a sinful world. So what's the Lord mean here? There must be something more to it. What's he mean when the horses come back and they say the world is at rest? We're told in this next section by a request that the angel makes of God. Verse 12, then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? against which you have been angry these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations, here it is, that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Okay, so the rest that's happening is the rest, the ease of the nations that are God's enemies. The nations that have been attacking God's people, they are at ease. They are at rest. And of course, we we talked about this a little bit last week, but Judah, they've been brought back to the promised land, but they still have enemies. There's still these other nations that are trying to stick it to Judah that are slowing down the process of them rebuilding the temple, that are attacking them in in various ways. But those nations aren't experiencing any consequences from that. They're attacking God's people, but with no consequences. They themselves are enjoying peace. And of course, that's what the angel is talking about here. That's the way in which the world is at rest. It's talking about God's enemies. They're attacking God's people, but they are at ease. If you wanted to get a little bit better context this afternoon, you could read Ezra chapter four that talks about the way that some of the other nations are still attacking God's people, trying to slow down the work of the promised land and and derail the plans for, for rebuilding the temple. So that's what he's talking about. God's the, the enemies of his people are at rest. And this continues a theme we see all throughout the prophetic books in the old Testament. So 
God had used enemy nations around Israel to judge them. So you remember God had been telling his people, we talked about this last week, God had been telling his people ever since their existence, hey, follow me, trust in me, don't sin in these ways, don't rebel against me. God's people had done the exact opposite of what God had asked them to do. And God started saying, hey, listen, if you guys continue in this rebellion, I'm going to have to judge you for this sin because I'm a good, holy God. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And they were taken into exile with, you remember the northern kingdom, the Assyrians come in, take them to exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, the Babylonians come in, take them into exile. So those nations were used as an instrument of the Lord, as a tool of the Lord to accomplish his purpose. And that's what the Lord does. In fact, every nation for all of human history, including all the nations today, they do what the Lord wants them to do. God is in control. Now, if as you think about that, you think, oh, I don't understand how that works, because oftentimes nations do bad things. How can God be sovereign and in control even when the instruments he uses are doing bad things? Well, that book I highlighted earlier, Big God, that'll be a helpful book for you to, to look at. It gets into what scripture teaches about that. But every nation does what the Lord wants them to do. Listen to the kind of control God exerts over nations, human kingdoms. This is Job chapter 12, verse 23. God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he disperses them. Okay, so the Babylonians, they had done exactly what God wanted them to do by taking Judah into exile. But even though that's what God determined would happen, and this is a little bit mysterious, even though God determined Babylon would do that, the Babylonians are still responsible for their actions. They did it not out of a heart that wanted to glorify the Lord. They did it as an attack on God's people, and they're responsible for that, even though God used it for good. And see, what God makes clear here is that they had acted sinfully in their treatment of his people. Up until that day, they had gone too far. Look at the way he says in verse 15. He says, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Okay, so, so God exiled his people for 70 years. It was a limited time period, and then he brings them back into the promised land. But even though he did it for just a little, they, the enemy nations, furthered the disaster. They were too harsh. They were too over the top. And they were still attacking God's people, even after the exile was done. In the words of verse 15, God was angry but a little, but these enemies furthered the disaster. And again, the problem is those enemy nations were currently at rest. They weren't being punished. They were getting away with it, is what it looked like. They were doing well. So this is the report the Lord gets from these horses. Verse 11, and they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, so the question and what we're about to see, the question is, what does the Lord think about that? What does the Lord think about it when he, his people are being attacked by their enemies and their enemies are getting away with it? There's no consequence. And that's, that's a relevant question for us because we are in many ways in the same category as God's people of Judah in the book of Zechariah. So, so just like they had been brought back into Judah 
In a way, they were in the kingdom, but in a way, the, the kingdom had not fully come again. That's us, right, as Christians. There's a way in which we're in the kingdom of Christ, but another way in which the kingdom hasn't fully come. So we're still sinners. We're still in a, a sinful place. We're still surrounded by enemies. We can think about those enemies. So, so here in this life, we have to live life in this sinful flesh. You have to live life here on this earth in your sinful flesh. And we've got Satan who's stalking around after us, trying to attack us. We have a world that is largely opposed to us. So, so what does God think about that situation? Enemies attacking God's people who seem to be getting away with it. How, how, does, how does God think about it when Satan tries to tempt and, tempt and devour the Christian? What does God think about it when, when the non-Christian government official uses his power to punish the Christian for obeying the Bible? What does God think about it when our sinful flesh regularly is tempting us to sin? So if, if there's a comforting word for Judah here, that will be a comforting word for us as well. And praise God, that's the exact kind of word that he's about to give. Verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So God's people in Judah, they were in a, a difficult spot, not fully saved, not fully away from their enemies. What kind of word does God give them? He gives a comforting word. But that's no surprise, is it? That's what our God does. He gives us comforting words. He always comforts his people. And that's because he's a comforting God. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Haven't you known somebody who in the middle of a difficult situation always seemed to have the right words? It's usually the person you reach out to, isn't it? When something's hard, you reach out to the person that, that you've got a history of seeing. They give you a comforting word. That's our God. His words are always comforting. They're always exactly what we need. And that's why when we're in a difficult situation, the first place we should go is God's word. Oftentimes it's not, right? Oftentimes the first place we go is, is what we see as the practical fix. So we might have an illness, we Google it, and we see what else could this be, or what treatment is there, right? Or we pursue a test, all those things are fine, but we don't wanna start there, do we? No, we wanna go initially to God's word. When we're anxious, when we're struggling, when we're worried, it's God's word that gives us comfort, in particular, the word of the gospel. And when we're trying to comfort a fellow believer, we should do the same for them give them God's word. I know we're spring-loaded to try to fix the problem practically, and that's a good thing. There's a place for that. We're commanded to do that with one another, right? But we don't want to start there. Let's try to train ourselves as a local church to start with comforting one another with the gospel, with comforting one another with the fact that God's sovereign and good, no matter what happens with our health, or what happens with our house, or what happens with our job or our family. We want to bring God's comforting words to bear. We say this in our church covenant. Inside this membership, we, we, we promise to, uh, to exercise an affectionate care over one another. Well, God comforts us through his word. So that's the way we should, we should exercise that care. Give one another his word, his comforting word about his goodness, 
about the good news of the gospel. So, so the Lord, he doesn't like the situation Judah is in, and he brings comforting words about how he's going to resolve this situation. So what does he say? What are these comforting words? It's two parts. They'll be our final two points this morning. So first, God promises he will fully save his people. Second, he promises he will fully judge his people's enemies. Again, these are comforting words from the Lord, so they should be comforting for us. Second main point, be comforted that God will save his people. Look at his answer, verse 14 and following. So the angel who talked with me and said to me, cry out, thus says, to the, Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Okay, so, so God's promising that a day is coming when he will bring full salvation to his people. Now, now let's look at this salvation a, a bit more closely. What is it exactly God's promising to his people? And this is there in the handout. What does it entail that God will bring full salvation? What's he promising to give them? Well, two things in this passage. First, it entails God's blessing. So full salvation entails God's blessing. In other words, God will give a good life to his people. Look down at verse 17. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. So remember, Judah's back in the promised land, but it doesn't feel the way it did before. They're not experiencing the full blessings. It's not the same, the kingdom isn't. There's still a, a fuller salvation waiting to come. They're still being attacked by nations. There's still rebels inside of Jerusalem. They still didn't experience God's presence fully. So, so heaven hasn't yet come down to earth. They were still affected by sin in, in a sinful world. And that sounds familiar because that's, again, that's our situation as Christians. We experience God's presence in certain ways, but, but not fully. And this is different from, from some, even folks that would say that, that, that they're Christian traditions. So some Christian traditions would say the Christian life really should be like heaven on earth. There are some that would say, no, when you become a Christian, if you're really trusting in the Lord, nothing bad will happen to you. You'll have a lot of money and be successful. You won't get sick. Oftentimes it's called the health and wealth gospel. There, there's been other traditions in Christianity that have said you will end up sinless. So as, as you grow and mature in Christ, even before Christ returns, before you go to be with him, you can get to the point where you're perfect. It's called perfectionism. Of course, we know that neither one of those things is, is true. We know those things will both happen, but, but not until Christ returns and brings heaven to earth. But, but that's not our world yet. God has nowhere promised to give us a full bank account or a healthy body or success at work. He hadn't promised those things in this, in this life. We're not guaranteed that kind of prosperity until the new heavens and, and the new earth. But God tells us there's a day coming in, in which his, his people will experience material blessing. will be taken care of fully. There won't be any suffering anymore. Verse 17 in our passage, cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. 
God tells his people that their, their future salvation will bring with it blessing. Listen to part of the New Testament reading that Sam read earlier from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The good news for us is if you're trusting in Christ alone to pay for your sins, if you're following Jesus, that's your future. A future in a place for eternity where there's no suffering or sadness or sickness or, or death any longer. So God's full, uh, full salvation entails his blessing, like he promises here in verse 17. But, but here's the second thing. We've got to notice this. The only reason we'll have God's blessing in the new heavens and the new earth is because we'll have his full presence. That's the second thing full salvation entails. It entails God's presence. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. God's telling his people the temple will once again be completed. Remember, what's the temple about? What's the point of the temple? If that's the place where they could have God's presence. So God's saying, my presence will come fully to be in the midst of my people. That's the second thing that full salvation entails. And, and see, that's actually the best part about salvation. The best part about the gospel is that we get God. Now, as Christians, we, we have God in significant ways, right? His spirit lives inside of you. So he's present to you in that way. We have his word. He's present to us in that way. We have the body of Christ where, where we see Christ move. That's why it's called the body of Christ. So we have his presence that way. We're able to pray to him. We have his presence that way. But see, as, as long as we're in this sinful flesh and in this sinful world, we're not experiencing God's full presence. That doesn't happen until we go to be with the Lord. In the same way his Old Testament people couldn't experience his full presence on earth apart from the temple, we can't experience his full presence until we go to be with him for all eternity. But one day we will experience that, his full unmediated presence. Revelation 21.3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So one day God will live with you. And that is by far the best part about heaven. Far outshines anything else good about it. In fact, there's a book that John Piper, he was a pastor up in Minnesota for a long time. He wrote a book called God is the Gospel about just this idea, the best thing about the gospel, the good news of it is that we get God. Listen to the question he asks, so good. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Isn't that a good question? Let your heart wrestle with that. 
Would you pick to go to that place? Would you say, yes, sign me up for that? A place where every good earthly thing I've ever had, apart from any difficulty, it's all there. But if Jesus wasn't, would you want it? That's a good question to think about. We shouldn't, right? We're tempted to think we'd be satisfied with a heaven full of good things if God wasn't there. But don't be fooled. We want it. The, The creation can't be fully enjoyed without the creator. All those blessings we get in heaven are just, are just part of the fact that God will be there. And that's the best part of the good news. But, but that's exactly what God has promised us as Christians. Okay, so that's what salvation entails. How, how do we get it? How do sinners like us get this full salvation? We certainly don't deserve to have God's blessing. We don't deserve his presence, right? We're sinners. So how do we get it? Well, we get it only because of his mercy. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. What's mercy? That's when God spares us from his wrath. We deserve it. We're sinners. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he's merciful. He prevents us from having to be punished for our sins. Don't forget what we saw in our passage last week. God can't overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. He's too good for that. He has to punish wrongdoing. So even though he's merciful, he he still has to deal with sin. So how could he promise Judah that a group of sinners like them would one day have his full presence, right? He can't ignore sin. How's he going to deal with it? Well, he makes that promise because he knows one is coming in the future who will take that sin on himself. The sin will get paid for, but it doesn't have to get paid for by his people. Flip a few pages over to chapter 13 of Zechariah. Chapter 13, we're going to look at verse 7. And there, the Lord reveals to Zechariah how this part of full salvation works. How can we get it? We're sinners. We don't deserve it. Sin has to be punished. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay, so the picture here is there's a man standing next to the Lord. He's called the shepherd. And he gets punished. He gets slashed with the sword. His life is given. Strike the shepherd. Now we know the shepherd is a good guy. That's the picture of that he's standing next to the Lord. He's with the Lord. So this is not an enemy. It's a friend of the Lord. It's a good guy, but he's struck down. Why is that? Well, Jesus quotes this verse and he tells us why that is. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Talking to the disciples, he says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's who Jesus is. This prophecy in chapter 13 of Zechariah pointing forward to Christ, the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. So we don't have to be struck with the sword. God's people don't have to be punished. Judah didn't have to be punished for their sins, not eternally. We're spared from that penalty because God sent Jesus to be our substitute, to stand in our place so the sword could land on him and we could be spared. That's God's mercy, isn't it? That's how God's people get full salvation. 
And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Jesus, let me tell you, the word makes it clear. He's the only option here. There's only two ways for sin to get dealt with. Either the sinner deals with the sins himself or herself before the Lord, or you let Jesus put those sins on his shoulders. And the work of Christ on the cross covered those sins. And the way you get there is by simple trust alone in Christ alone. Not by working, but by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. That's the way you can have your sins instantly taken off you. You can get an innocent verdict from the Lord. And Christ paid for those sins on the cross. So do that. Trust alone in Christ alone to have your sins forgiven. Come talk to me or one of the other elders. If, uh, if you're willing to, to do that, if you'll believe that promise now, come talk to us about that or if you have more questions about it. But of course, that's, that's what happened to us as members of Cornerstone Baptist Church. God's mercy is, is an incredible thing, right? It's so kind and gracious of him to put Christ under the sword instead of us. We don't deserve that. It's, it's only because of God's mercy that we have it. He makes that clear to his people during the time of Zechariah, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Okay, but, but now why does God decide to do this? That's how it happens. He's merciful. But why does he decide to give a group of people mercy? He doesn't save everybody. Otherwise, there would be no need for condemnation. There'd be no need for hell. He doesn't save everyone. So why did he decide to, decide to save Judah? Well, it's only because of his grace. Verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Now, when we hear that word jealous, we think about the bad form of jealousy, which is wanting something that doesn't belong to us. So somebody has a car that you would rather have, you can get jealous about that. Somebody has a job you would rather have, you can get jealous about that, right? But, but that's not the kind of jealousy the Lord is talking about here. The Lord is jealous for things that belong to him, things that he loves. So a, a symbol of this in, in the Bible, a husband is told to be jealous for his wife and a wife is told to be jealous for her husband. So you're supposed to want that commitment to be exclusive. Well, that's the kind of jealousy that the Lord has. He's jealous, he's, he's concerned to protect the relationship between him and his people. So in verse 14, he's jealous for Jerusalem. God values the relationship between him and his people. So for those of us who are Christians, God values his relationship with you. Now that is something. I, I can basically promise you, you won't hear another more incredible sentence than what I just said today. God values his relationship with you. That is unreal. The God who needs nothing, fully self-sufficient. He doesn't need other relationships either because he's, he's existed as a triune God for all eternity. The Father had the Son and the Spirit and so forth. They were doing great. And yet God values his relationship with you through Christ. That's an incredible thing. He's jealous for you. And we need to understand he's not jealous for us. He's not jealous for Judah because of something good inside of us. So you know how unimpressive you are because you know your own heart. Well, Judah wasn't an impressive people. 
That's not why the Lord came and got them. He, he was jealous for them because he simply decided to love them in a unique way. God had decided to love Israel. So why did he give salvation? O- only because of his grace. That's the only reason that he gave you salvation. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. So you can see why, why these would have been comforting words for Judah. Things were hard for them, but, but God makes it clear he hadn't forgotten about them. And one day he would bring full salvation. These are comforting words. And in Christ, they're comforting words for us too. God sent Jesus to pay for your sins so that one day you could experience full salvation. He did that only because of his grace. As verse 13 says, his words toward you are gracious and comforting. So be comforted that God will save his people. But as we close, there's another side to the coin. There's another reason that these words are comforting. It's not just that God gives his blessing and presence to his people. He also has to defeat his people's enemies. And that's what the final few verses in our passage are about. Verse 18 to the end of the passage. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And this is our final point. Be comforted that God will defeat his people's enemies. God will defeat his people's enemies. This is the second vision Zechariah has given but obviously it's playing off the first theme. It's a continuation of that first vision. And, and it's a vision again, symbolic here, of these four horns that the angel tells him are, are representative of, uh, of Israel's enemy. And in that culture, and it makes sense in our culture too, but horns were, were seen as a, a symbol of authority and power. So, you know, if there's an animal, let's say that you come across a deer and it doesn't have any horns, and then you come across one of those bucks with big horns, well, you're, you're more nervous about that buck with big horns. In fact, I remember early on in Maine, one of the many terrifying things that Mainers told us early on, uh, all sorts of different things. What happens if you fall through ice, how to try to preserve yourself until somebody can get to you, which was the moment where I decided I'm never gonna walk on frozen ice in Maine, and that served me well. But they talked about a moose, and if you see a moose in the middle of the road, they were stubborn things. It was like uh, uh, the cat at Mark and Amy's house when we went out to their farm yesterday where I'm pulling down the driveway and that cat's laying in the middle of the driveway and I ended up going around the cat because the cat made it clear I'm not moving. Well, moose are like that too. So what they would tell you in Maine is if you're coming up on a moose and it's clear, you're going to hit this thing. Maybe you don't see it until you get too close. You don't hit your brakes because if you hit your brakes, the front of the car dips and that's when those antlers can come through that windshield and impale you. It's a pretty terrifying thing. So animals with big horns, scary things. So that's what they use these horns for as a symbol of authority, fear, punishment. So they stand in the place of the nations, the opposing armies here. Now, now it could be that each of these four horns stands in for a specific nation. See that happened in Daniel. Daniel gives that sort of uh, uh, play of, of these different nations, and this is what is stood for there. Or... It could be that these four horns just represent all of Israel's enemies. 
So like when the Lord says, from the four corners of the earth, what that means is from all the earth. Could be talking about that, from all of Israel's enemies. In any event, what's significant is what happens to these enemies at the end. This is the prophecy the Lord gives about them. Verse 20, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, that no one raised his head, so the enemy nations. And these, these craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, these four craftsmen, most likely either woodworkers or blacksmiths, but in any event, people that had the tools to saw down horns on an animal. It's a picture of God defeating his people's enemies. And, and this makes perfect sense, right? How can God save his people without also defeating their enemies? Those two things go hand in hand. Salvation of his people requires judgment of their enemies. In fact, look back at verse 15. You see this play on words here, those two things going together. Verse 15, so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. So you see the pairing of those phrases. He's exceedingly jealous. That means he loves you. He's going to save you. And he's exceedingly angry with your enemies. That means he's going to judge them. Those two things go together. Because God loves his people, he's angry with their enemies. I grew up every year going to the beach in North Carolina, and we always loved the seagulls. So we were the family that would go down, we'd rent a house, we'd go out to the end of the deck and throw pieces of bread and end up with every seagull from the coast that was there wanting to get bread from us. And we, we never had any problem with, uh, with seagulls. But if, uh, if, if Annie didn't hear this right now, you could have gone up to Annie before the service and said, hey, Annie, if your dad could go back in time and change one thing, what would he change? She's laughing because she knows. Here's what she would say. Dad would have punched that bird in the face. Now, you don't have context for that, so I'll give it. We're in southern Maine. We're on a vacation in 2020. We had brought sandwiches. The seagulls in Maine are different than the seagulls in North Carolina. They are big, ugly, angry things. And Annie, sweet four-year-old Annie, who had never hurt anybody in her life, is holding her sandwich, getting ready to eat it. And this fat, mean seagull flies up and grabs the sandwich out of Annie's hand. And I have never wanted to punch an animal in the face as much as I did then. We understand that, right? I was angry with that bird because it had made itself an enemy of my daughter who I love. Those things go hand in hand. It's two sides to the same coin. That's the way the Lord feels about his people. He loves us. Therefore, he's angry with our enemies. He will punish them on the day of judgment in part because he loves his people. We read the beginning of Revelation 21 a minute ago. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 8. Same thing. It plays off one another. He'll be good to us. But then Revelation 21 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He does the same thing he does in our passage. He talks about salvation for my people and immediately chases it with judgment for their enemies. It's the same thing that he does here. The two are connected. 
And so look again at what God promises he'll end up doing to these enemies of his people. Last sentence of verse 21. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So salvation of his people entails judgment of their enemies. Look back at verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. So these words about judgment are supposed to comfort Judah. It means God's people can can look forward to a day when they no longer have any enemies around them to harm them. And it's the same for us. So be comforted. God will cast down all of our enemies as the people of God. One day God will cut off the horns of the world who attacks you and thinks little of you because of following Christ. One day he'll cut off the horns of the devil who harasses you and tempts you to turn your back on God. One day he'll cut off the horns of your sinful flesh, which is the starting place of all of your sin and all of my sin. When Christ returns to fully save us, he'll finally defeat all our enemies. And that's required for full full salvation. So in the same way that you can't get to cooler temperatures unless you leave warmer temperatures, right? You can't get to salvation without getting away from enemies. And that's what's in store for you as a Christian. You'll you'll be taken away from every enemy of God's people and given full blessing in God's full presence for eternity. So be comforted. Verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that that is exactly what your word is for us who are trusting in Jesus. They are comforting words. So Father, we, we draw comfort this morning We draw comfort, Father, from the fact that you see everything all the time. You're supervising everything. Every detail of this universe has your full attention at all points. What a God that is worthy of worship. What a God who's worthy of our trust. Help us to put our trust more fully in you simply because of that fact. But Father, we're also comforted because you you promised to not leave us in this difficult world, in this sinful flesh. You will come and save us one day. You'll give us your full blessing and your full presence for all eternity away from all of our enemies. Father, we look forward to that day. We pray that 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 truth, that hope would be, Father, what stimulates us in this life to pursue you and trust in you and hold on to Christ for our good and for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.